history as trajectory. 2.1. Our history is the prologue to the network state. This is not obvious. Founding a All right. This is not obvious. Founding a startup society, as we've described it, seems to be about growing a community, writing code, crowdfunding land, and eventually attaining. Damn, it did it again. Let me show. Okay, we did that. Now let's get back to it. And eventually attaining the diplomatic recognition to become a network state. What does history have to do with anything? The short... The short version is, is that if a tech company is about technological innovation first and company culture second, a star society is the reverse. Disconnected from... Times, let's try it again. The short version is that if a tech comp company is about technological innovation first and company culture second, a startup society is the reverse. I just keep getting removed. I'm going to keep trying to read. That size, it's about community culture first and technological innovation second. And while in bananas because I keep getting disconnected. So what I'm going to try and do is I'm going to pull this up on my laptop and leave the call-in app open because I think if you go to a different app while in the call-in app, like while you're open and go to like, I don't know, Adobe PDF reader or something like that, then all of a sudden it disconnects you. Like it's like too much bandwidth in this app. So my... Apologies for this. And we will get back to the amazing, incredible network state in about two seconds, which I am in the middle of getting up here. In fact, we're just going to make this easy and do this. The network state.com. Let's see how this goes, baby. Okay, we're gonna go right to it. All right, here we go. Back at it. We're gonna start over fresh. Our history is the prologue to the network state. This is not obvious. Founding a startup society as we've described it seems to be about growing a community, writing code, crowdfunding land, and eventually attaining the diplomatic recognition to become a network state. What does history have to do with anything? The short version is, is that if a tech company is about technological innovation first and a company culture second, a startup society is the reverse. It's about community culture first and technological innovation second. And while innovating on technology means forecasting the future, innovating on culture means probing the past. But why, you ask? Well, for a tech company like SpaceX, you start with time-invariant laws of physics extracted from the data laws that tell you how atoms collide and interact with each other. The study of these laws allows you to do something that has never been done before, seemingly proving that history doesn't matter. But the, but the subtly, subtly, the subtly, subtly, <laughs> is that these laws of physics encode in highly compressed form the results of innumerable scientific experiments. You are learning from human experience rather than trying to re-derive physical law from scratch. To touch Mars, we stand on the shoulders of giants. For a startup society, we don't yet have eternal mathematical laws for a society. 
History is the closest thing we have to a physics of humanity. It furnishes many accounts of how human actors collide and interact with each other. The right course of historical study encodes, in compressed form, the results of innumerable social experiments. You can learn from human experience rather than rederiving societal law from scratch. Learn some history so as not to repeat it. That's a theoretical argument. An observational argument is that we know that the technological innovation of the Renaissance began by rediscovering history, and we know that the Founding Fathers cared deeply about history. In both cases, they stepped forward by drawing from the past. So, if you're a technologist looking to blaze a trail with a new startup society that establishes plausibility for why historical study is important, the logistical argument is perhaps the most compelling. Think about how much easier it is to use an iPhone than it was to build Apple from scratch. To consume, you can just click a button, but to produce, it's necessary to know something about how companies are built. Similarly, it's one thing to operate as a mere citizen of a pre-built country and quite another thing to create one from scratch. To build a new society, it'd be helpful to have some knowledge of how countries were built in the first place, the logistics of the process. And this, again, brings us into the domain of history. Why history is crucial. You can't really learn something without using it. One day of immersion with a new language beats weeks of book learning. One day of trying to build something with a programming language beats weeks of theory too. In the same way, the history we teach is an applied history, a crucial tool for both the pr uh, prospective president of a startup society and for their citizens, shareholders, and staff. It's something you'll use on a daily basis. Why? Well, part one, history is how you win the argument. Think about the 1619 Project or the Grievance Studies departments at universities or even a newspaper profile of some unfortunate. You might be mining cryptocurrency, but the folks behind such things are mining history. That is, many thousands of people are engaged full-time in offense archaeology, the excavation of the recent and distant past for some useful incident they can write up to further demoralize their political opposition. This is the scholarly version of going through someone's old tweets. It's weaponized history, history as opposition research. You simply cannot win an argument against such people on pure logic alone. You need facts, so therefore you need history. Part two, history determines legality. We denote the exponential improvement in transistor density over the post-war period by Moore's law. We describe the exponential decline in pharmaceutical R&D efficiency during the same period as Erum's law, as Moore's law in reverse. That is, over the last several decades, the FDA somehow presided over an enormous hike in the cost of drug development, even as our computers and our knowledge of the human genome vastly improved. Similar phenomena can be observed in energy, where energy production has stagnated in aviation, where top speeds have topped out, and in construction, where we build slower than we did 70 years ago. Obviously, even articulating Erum's law requires detailed knowledge of history knowledge of how things used to be. Less obviously, if we want to change Erum's law, if we, have, if we want to innovate in the physical world again, we'll need history too. The reason is, is that behind every FDA is the thalidomide. Just as behind every TSA, there's a 9-11, and behind every Sarbanes-Oxley, there's an Enron. Regulation is dull, but the incidents that lead to regulation are anything but dull. This history is used to defend ancient regulations. If you change them, people will die. As such, to legalize physical innovation, you'll need to become a counter-historian. Only when you understand the, legitimate, the legitimacy history of regulatory agencies better than their proponents do can you build a superior alternative. A new regulatory paradigm capable of addressing both the abuses of the American regulatory state and the abuses they claim to prevent. History determines morality. Religions start with history lessons. You might think of these as made-up histories, but they're, they're all histories all the same. Tales of the distant past, fictionalized or not, that describes how human wants behave and how they should have behaved. There's a moral to these stories. Political doctrines are based on history lessons too. They're how the establishment justifies itself. The mechanism for propagating these history lessons is the establishment newspaper, wherein most articles aren't really about true or false, but good and bad. Try it yourself. Just by glancing at a headline from any establishment outlet, you can instantly apprehend its moral lesson. Exism is bad. 
our system of government is good, tech founders are bad, and so on. If you poke one level deeper, if you ask why any of these things are good or bad, you'll again get a history lesson. Because why is X isn't bad? Well, let me educate you on some history. The installation of these moral premises is a zero-sum game. There's only room for so many moral lessons in one society because a brain's capacity for moral computation is limited. So you get a totally different society if 99% of people allocate their limited moral memory to principles like hard work good, meritocracy bad, or meritocracy good, envy bad, charity good. Then if 99% of people have internalized notions such like socialism is good, civility bad, law enforcement bad, looting good. You can try to imagine a scenario where these two sets of moral values aren't in direct conflict, but empirically those with the first set of moral values will favor an entrepreneurial society and those with the second set of values will not. History is how you develop compelling media. You can make up entirely fictional stories, of course, but even fiction frequently has some kind of historical antecedent. The Lord of the Rings drew on medieval Europe. Spaghetti Westerns pulled from the Wild West and Bond movies were inspired by the Cold War and so on. And certainly the legitimizing of stories for any political order will draw on history. History is the true value of cryptocurrency. Bitcoin is worth hundreds of billions of dollars because it's a cryptographically verifiable history of who holds what BTC. Read the truth machine for a book length treatment of this concept. History tells you who's in charge. Why did Orwell say that he who controls the past controls the future and that he who controls the present controls the past? Because history textbooks are written by the winners. They are authored, subtly or not, to tell a story of great triumph by the ruling establishment over its past enemies. The only history most people in the U.S. know is 1776, 1865, 1945, that was the last New World Order, and 1965 a potted history of revolutions, world wars, and activist movements that lead inexclusively to the sunny uplands of greater political equality. It's very similar to the history the Soviets taught their children, where all the past was interpreted through the lens of class struggle, bringing Soviet citizens to the present day, where they were inevitably progressing from the intermediate stage of socialism towards, you guessed it, communism. Chinese schoolchildren learn a similarly selective history where the real wrongs of European colonists and Japanese are centered and those of Mao downplayed. And even any successful startup tells a founding story that sands off the rough edges. In short, a history textbook gives you a hero's journey that celebrates the triumph of its establishment authors against all odds. Even when a historical treatment covers ostensible victims like Soviet textbooks covering the victimization of the plurirate, even if you look carefully, the ruling class that offers that treatment typically justifies itself as the champion of those victims. This is why one of the first acts of any conquering regime is to rewrite the textbooks to tell you who's in charge. History determines your hiring policy. Why are tech companies being lectured by media corporations on, quote, diversity? Is it because those media corporations that are 20 to 30 points whiter than tech companies actually deeply care about this? Or is it because after the 2009 era collapse of print media revenue, media corporations struggled for a business model, found that certain words drove traffic, and then doubled down on that, boosting their stock price and bashing their competitors in the process? After all, if you know a bit more history, you'll know that the New York Times company, which originates so many of these uh, Jeremiads, is an organization where the controlling Ox Soulsberger family literally profited from slavery, blocked women from being publishers, excluded gays from newsroom for decades, ran a succession process featuring only three cis white male cousins, and ended up with a publisher who just happened to be the son of the previous guy. Suppose you're a founder. Once you know this history, and once all your friends and employees and investors know it, and once you know that no perfectly brave establishment media corporation would have ever informed you of it in quite those words, you are outside the matrix. You've mentally freed your organizations. So as long as you aren't running a corporation based on hereditary nepotism, where the current guy running the show inherits the company from his father's 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 father, you're more diverse and democratic than the owners of the New York Times company. You don't need to take lectures from them, from anyone in their employ, 
or really from anyone in their social circle, which includes all establishment journalists. You now have the moral authority to hire who you need to hire within the confines of the law as SpaceX, Shopify, Kraken, and others are now doing. And that's how a little knowledge of history restores control over your hiring policy. History is how you debug our broken society. Many billions of dollars are spent on history in the engineering world. We don't think about it that way, though. We call it doing a postmortem, looking over the log files, maybe running a so-called time travel debugger to get a reproducible bug. Once we find it, we might want to execute an undo, do a git revert, restore from backup, or return to a previously known good configuration. Think about what we're saying. On a micro scale, knowing the detailed past of the system allows us to figure out what had gone wrong. And being able to partially rewind the past to, pro to progress along a different branch via a git revert empowers us to fix that wrongness. This doesn't mean throwing away everything and returning to the caveman era of a blank git repository as per either that character-rated traditionalist who wanted to, quote, turn back the clock or the anarcho-primitivist who wants to end industrialized civilization. But it does mean rewinding a bit to then move forward along a different path because progress has both magnitude and direction. All of these concepts apply to debugging situations at larger scale than companies like societies or countries. You now see why history is useful. A founder of a mere startup company can arguably scrape by without it tactically outsourcing the study of history to those who shape society's laws and morality. But a president of a startup society cannot because a new society involves moral, social, and legal innovation relative to the old one, and that requires a knowledge of history. Why history is crucial for startup societies. We've whetted the appetite with some specific examples of why history is useful in general. Now we'll describe why it's specifically useful for startup societies. We begin by introducing an operationally useful set of tools for thinking about the past from a bottom-up and top-down perspective. History as written to the ledger as opposed to history as written by the winners. We use these tools to discuss the emergence of a new Lefteon, the network, a contender for the most powerful force in the world, a true peer and complement to both God and the state as a mechanism for social organization. And then we'll bring it all together in the lead-up to the key concept of this chapter, the idea of the One Commandment, a historically founded socio-political innovation that draws citizens to a startup society just as technologically-based commercial innovation attracts customers to a startup company. If a startup begins by identifying economic problem in today's market and presenting a technologically informed solution to that problem in the form of a new company, a startup society begins by identifying a moral issue in today's culture and presenting a historically informed solution to that issue in the form of a new society. Why startup societies aren't solely about technology. Wait, why does a startup society have to begin with a moral issue? And why does the solution to that moral issue need to be historically informed? Can't it just be a tech-focused community where people solve problems with equations? We're interested in Mars and life extension, not dusty stories of defunct cities. The quick answer comes from Paul Johnson at the 11 mark of this talk where he notes that early America's religious colonies succeeded at a higher rate than its for-profit colonies because the former had a purpose. The slightly longer answer is that in a startup society, you're not asking people to buy a product, which is an economic individualistic pitch, but to join a community, which is a cultural collective pitch. You are arguing that the culture of your startup society is better than the surrounding culture, implicitly, that means there's some moral deficit in the world that you are fixing. History comes into play because you'll need A, write, uh, write a study of that moral deficit, and B, draw from the past to find alternative social arrangements where that moral deficit did not occur. Tech may be part of the solution, and calculations may well be involved, but the moment you write about any societal problem in depth, you'll find yourself writing a history of that problem. For specifics, you can read about examples of parallel societies, or if you can suspend your belief for a little bit, listen a little bit more, and trust me that this historical, moral, ethical angle just might be the missing ingredient to build startup societies, which after all haven't yet fully taken off in the modern world. Applied history for startup societies. 
All right, here's the outline of this. We start with the bottom-up history. This section on microhistory and macrohistory bridges the gap between the trajectory of an isolated, reproducible system and the trajectories of millions of interacting human beings. Because both of these small and large trajectories can now be digitally recorded and quantified, this is history as written to the ledger, culminating in the crypto history of Bitcoin. Number two, we next discuss top-down history. This is history as written by the winners. History as conceptualized by what Tyler Cohen calls the base raiders. History that justifies the current world order and proclaims it stable and inevitable. It is a theory of political power versus technological truth. Number three, we then talk about the history of power, giving names to the forces we just described by identifying the three candidates for the most powerful forces in the world, God, state, and network. Framing things in terms of three prime movers rather than one allows us to generalize beyond purely God-centered religions to understand the Lepion-centered doctrines that implicitly underpin modern society. Number four, we apply this to the history of power struggles. With the God-state network lens, we can understand the blue, red, and tech-verse media conflicts in a different way as a multi-sided struggle between people of God, people of the state, and people of the network. Number five. We go through how people of the state have used their power to distort recent and distant history and how the network is newly rectifying this distortion in, quote, if the news is fake, imagine history, close quote. Number six, having shown the degree to which history has been distorted and thereby displaced the implicit historical narrative in which the arc of history bonds Oh, the arc of history bends to the ineluctable victory of the U.S. establishment. We discuss several alternative theories of past and future in our section on fragmentation, frontier, fourth turning, and future is our past. These theses don't describe a clean progressive victory on every axis, but instead a set of cycles, hairpin turns, and mirror images, a set of historical trajectories far more complex than the narrative linear of linear inevitability smuggled even through the textbooks and mass media. Number seven, the history textbooks are neoliberal. <laughs> um, number seven, we next turn our attention to left and right, which are confusing concepts in realigning a time in left is the new right is the new left. Sorry, we can't avoid politics anymore. Startup societies aren't purely about technology, but please note, that for the most part, this section is not the same old pablum around the current events. We do contend that you need a theory of left and right to build a starved society, but that doesn't mean just picking a side. Why? While a political consumer has to pick one of a few party platforms off the menu, a political founder can do something different. Ideology construction. To inform this, we'll show how left and right have swapped sides through history and how any successful mass movement has both a revolutionary left component and a ruling right component. And number eight, finally, all this builds up to the payoff, the one commandment. Using the terminology we, we just introduced, we can rally it off in a few paragraphs. If the following is opaque in any way, read the chapter and then come back and re-listen to this part. If history is not predetermined to bend in one direction, if the current establishment may experience dramatic disruption in the form of fragmentation and forth turning, if its power actually arose from the expanding frontier rather than the expanding franchise, if history is somehow running in reverse as per the future is our past thesis, if the revolutionary and ruling class are in fact switching sides, if the new Lethion is the network is indeed rising above the state, and if the internal American conflicts can be seen as policy disrupts disputes, but as holy wars, as clashes of Lethions, then at the assumption of the base writers, we will proceed as it always has is quite incorrect. That was a mouthful. Let's keep going. But rather than admit this incorrectness, they'll attempt to use political power to suppress technological truth. The founders counter is crypto history and the start of society. We now have a history no establishment can easily corrupt. The cryptographically verifiable history pioneered by Bitcoin and extended via crypto oracles. We also have a theory of historical feasibility. History as a trajectory 
rather than in inevitability. The idea that the desirable future will only occur if you put in individual effort. But what exactly is the nature of that desirable future? After all, many groups differ with the old order, but also with each other. So a blanket solution can't work and probably would be well resisted. That's where the one commandment comes in. As context, the modern person is often morally reticent, but politically evangelistic. <laughs> they, they hesitate to talk about what is moral or immoral because it's not their place to say what's right. Yet, when it comes to politics, this diffidence is frequently replaced by overbearing confidence in how others must live, coupled with an enthusiasm for enforcing their beliefs at gunpoint if necessary. In between this zero and infinity, in between eschewing moral discussion entirely and imposing a full-blown political doctrine, in this final section, we propose a one, a one commandment. Start a new society with its own moral code based on your study of history and recruit people that agree with you to populate it. We're not saying you need to come up with your own new Ten Commandments, mind you, but you need one commandment to establish the differentiation the differentiation of a new startup society. Concrete examples of possible one commandments include 24-7 internet bad, which leads to a digital Sabbath society, or carbs bad, which leads to a keto kosher society, or traditional Christianity good, which leads to a Benedict option society, or life extension good, which leads to a post-FDA society. You might think these one commandments sound either trivial or unrealistically ambitious, but in fact, they're respective in that respect, they're similarly they're similar to tech. The pitch of quote 140 characters sounded trivial, and the pitch of quote reusable rockets seemed unrealistic, but those resulted in Twitter and SpaceX, respectively. The one commandment is also similar, similar to tech in another respect. It focuses a startup society on a single moral innovation, just like a tech company is focused about tech techno-economic innovation. That is, as we will soon see, each one commandment-based startup society is premised on deconstructing the establishment's history in one specific area, erecting a replacement narrative in its place with a new one commandment, then proving the socioeconomic value of that one commandment by using it to attract subscriber citizens. For example, if you can attract 100,000 subscribers to your keto kosher society, through deeply researched historical studies on the obesity epidemic and then show that they've lost significant weight as a consequence, you've proven the establishment deeply wrong in a key area. That'll either drive them to reform or not reform, in which case you can attract more citizens or subscribers. A key point is that we can apply all the techniques of a startup company to startup societies, financing, Attracting subscribers, calculating churn, doing customer support. There's a playbook for all of that. It's just society as a service, the new SaaS. In parallel, other startup societies are likewise critiquing by building, draining citizens away from the establishment with their own historically informed one commandments and thereby driving change on other dimensions. Finally, different successful changes can be copied and merged together such that different second excuse me, merge together such that the second generation of startup societies starts differentiating from the establishment by two, three, or N commandments. This is a vision for peaceful, parallel, uh, parallelized, historically driven reform of a broken society. Okay, I know those last few paragraphs involve some heavy sledding, but come back and re-listen to them after going through this chapter. The main point of our little preview here was to make the case that history is an applied subject and that you can't start a new society without it. Without a genuine moral critique of the establishment, without an ideological root network supported by history, your new society is at best a fancy Starbucks lounge, a gated community that differs only in its amenities, a snack to be eaten by the establishment at its leisure, a soulless nullity with no direction, save consumerism. But with such critique, with the understanding that the establishment is morally wanting, 
with a focused articulation of how exactly it falls short with a one commandment that others can choose to follow and with a vision of the historical past that underpins your new startup society, such as a vision of the technological future underpins of a new startup company, you are well on your way. You might even start to see a historical white paper floating in front of you. The scholarly critique that draws your first 100 subscribers, the founding document you publish to kick off your startup society. Now, let's equip you with the tools to rewrite it. Micro history and macro history. In the bottom up view, history is written to the ledger. If everything that happened gets faithfully recorded, history is then just the analysis of the log files. To understand this view, we'll discuss the idea of history as a trajectory. Then we'll introduce the concepts of microhistory and macrohistory by uh, analogy to microeconomics and macroeconomics. And finally, we'll unify all of this with the new concept of crypto history. History as a cryptic epic of twisting trajectories. What happens when you propel an object into the air? The first thing that comes to mind is the trajectory of a ball. Throw it and witness its arc, just as a simple parabola, an exercise in freshman physics. But there are more complicated trajectories. A boomerang flies forward and comes back to the origin. A charged particle in a constant magnetic field is subject to force at right angles and moves in a circle. A rocket with sufficient fuel can escape the Earth's atmosphere rather than coming back down. A curveball, subject to the Magnus effect, can twist in midair en route to its destination. A projectile launched into a sufficiently thick gelatin decelerates without ever hitting the ground. And a powered drone can execute an arbitrarily complicated flight path mimicking that of a bumblebee or helix. So, how a system evolves with time, its trajectory can be complex and counterintuitive even for something small. This is a good analogy for history. If the flight path of a single inanimate object can be this surprising, think about the dynamics of a massive multi-agent system of highly animate people. Imagine billions of humans springing up on the map, forming clusters, carrying into each other, and creating more humans and throwing off petabytes of data exhaust the whole way. That is history. And the time frames involved make it tough to study. The rock you throw into the air doesn't take decades to play out its flight path. Humans do. So a historical observer can literally die before seeing the consequences of an action. Moreover, the subjects of the study don't want to be studied. A mere rock isn't a stealth bomber. It has neither the motive nor the means to deceive you about its flight path. Humans do. The people under the microscope are fogging the lens. So... The scale is huge, the time frame is long, and the measurements aren't just noisy, but they're intentionally corrupted. And that's a lot what we're seeing now is with all this corruption, which I'm sure you guys are aware of. We can encode all of this into a phrase. History is a cryptic epic of twisting trajectories. I'll say it again. History is a cryptic epic of twisting trajectory. Cryptic, because the narrators are unreliable and often intentionally misleading. Epic because the timescales are so long that you have to constantly sample beyond your own experience and beyond any human lifetime to see patterns. Twisting because there are curves, cycles, collapses, and non-straightforward patterns. And trajectories because history is ultimately about the time evolution of human beings, which maps to the physical idea of a dynamical system of a set of particles progressing through time. Put that together and it wipes out both the base raider's view that today's order will remain basically stable over the short term and the complementary view of a long term, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, close quote. It also contests the idea that the fall of the Bregesi and the victory of the proletariat are equally inevitable and that no two countries on a Bitcoin standard will go to war with each other or even that technological progress has been rapid, so we can assume it will continue and society will not collapse. Those phrases come from different ideologies, but each of them verbally expresses the clean, parabolic arc of the rock. History isn't really like that at all. It's much more complicated. There are certainly trends, but those phases do identify real trends, but there is also pushback to those trends, counter forces that arise in response to applied forces, 
synthesis that form from these theses and antithesis that outright collapses complex dynamics in other words and how we study complex dynamics the first task is to measure microhistory is the history of reproducible systems microhistory is the history of re of a reproducible system one which has few enough variables that it can be reset and replayed from the beginning in a series of controlled experiments. It is history as a quantitative trajectory, history as a precise log of measurements. For example, it could be the record for all past values of a state space vector in a dynamical system, the account of all moves made by two deterministic algorithms playing chess against each other, or the chronicle of all instructions executed by, the by a journaling file system after being restored to factory settings. Microhistory is an applied subject where accurate historical measurement is of direct technical and commercial importance. We can see this with technologies like the Kalman filter, which was used for steering the spaceship using the moon landing. You can see the full technical details on this other paper, which I'll share in the show notes. But roughly speaking, the Kalman filter uses past measurements to inform the estimate of a system's current state, the action that should be taken, and the corresponding prediction of the future state should that action be taken. For example, it uses past velocity, direction headings, fuel levels, and the like to recommend how a space shuttle should be steered at the current time step. Crucially, if the microhistory is not accurate enough, if the confidence intervals around each measurement are too wide, or if, say, the velocity estimate is wrong altogether, then the Kalman filter does not work and Apollo doesn't happen. At a surface level, the Kalman filter resembles the kind of time series analysis that's common in finance. The key difference is that the Kalman filter is used in reproducible systems, while finance is typically a non-reproducible system. If you're using the Kalman filter to guide a drone from point A to point B, but you have a bug in your code and the drone crashes, you can simply pick up the drone, put it back on the launch pad at point A, and try again. Because you can repeat the experiment over and over, you can eventually get very precise measurements and a functioning guidance algorithm. That is a reproducible system. In finance, however, you usually can't just keep rerunning a trading algorithm that makes money and get the same result. Eventually, your counterparties will adapt and get wise. A key difference relative to our drone example is the presence of animate objects, other humans, who won't always do the same thing given the same input. Like, we're not robots, like, you know, the World Economic Forum wants us to be, unfortunately. In fact, they can often be adversarial, or adversarial, I'm sorry, uh, observing and reacting to your actions, intentionally confounding your predictions, especially if they can profit from doing so. Past performance is no guarantee of future results in finance as opposed to physics. Unlike the situation with a drone, a market is not a reproducible system. Microhistory thus has its limits, but it's an incredibly powerful concept. If we have good enough measurements on the past, then we have a better prediction of the future in an extremely literal sense. If we have tight confidence intervals on our measurements of the past, if the probability distribution is highly peaked, then we get correspondingly tight confidence intervals on the present and the future. Conversely, the more uncertainty about your past, the more confused you are about where you're from and where you're going, the more likely your rocket will crash. It's Orwell more literally than he ever expected. He who controls the past controls the future in the direct sense that he has better control theory. Only a civilization with a strong capacity for accurate microhistory could ever make it to the moon. That's a powerful analogy for civilization. A group of people who doesn't know who they are or where they come from won't ever make it to the moon, let alone Mars. Can we make it more than an analogy, macro history is the history of non-reproducible systems. Macro history is the history of a non-reproducible system, one which has too many variables to easily be reset and replayed from the beginning. It is history that is not directly amenable to controlled experiment. At small scale, that's the unpredictable flow of a turbulent fluid. At a very large scale, it's the history of humanity. 
We think of macro history as being on a continuum with micro history. Why? We'll make a few points and then tie them all together. First, science progresses by taking phenomena formerly thought of as non-reproducible and hence unpredictable systems, isolating the key variables and turning them into reproducible and then hence predictable systems. For example, Koch's postulates include the idea of transmission pathogenesis, which turned the vague concept of infection via miasma into a reproducible phenomenon. Exposure, expose a mouse to a specific microorganism in a laboratory setting and an infection arises, but not otherwise. Second, and relatedly, science progresses by improved instrumentation, by better record keeping. Star charts enable celestial navigation. Johann Balmer's documentation of the exact spacing of hydrogen's emission spectra led to quantum mechanics. Gregor Mendel's careful counting of pea plants led to modern genetics. Things we counted as simply beyond human ken, the stars, the atom, the genome, became things humans can comprehend by simply counting. Third, how do we even know anything about the history of ancient Rome or Egypt or even medieval Europe? From artifacts and written records. Thousands of years ago, people were scratching customer reviews into a stone tablet. They would, they would, they would call the tablet Yelp. Stone tablet or Google reviews until that got corrupted. Uh, stone tablet, one of the first tablet-based apps. We, we, we know who Albillard and Helosi were from their letters to each other. Sorry if I mispronounce this. We know what the Romans were like from what they recorded. To a significant extent, what we know about him from what people wrote down. Fourth, today we have a digital documentation on an unprecedented scale. We have billions of people using social media each day for almost a decade now. And we can see the world's gotten a lot calmer. We also have billions of phones taking daily photographs and videos. We have countless data feeds of instruments. And we have massive hard drives to store all of it. So if reckoned on the basis of raw bytes, we likely record more information in a day than all of humanity recorded up to the year 1900. It is by far the most comprehensive log of human history we've ever had, human activity we've ever had. We can now see the continuum between macro history and micro history. We are collecting the kinds of precise quantitative micro historical measurements that typically led to the emergence of a new science, but at the scale of billions of people and going into our second decade. So another form, another term for big data should be big history. All data is a record of past events, sometimes the immediate past, sometimes the past of months or years ago, sometimes in the case of Google Books or the digital Michelangelo project, the past of decades or centuries ago. After all, what's another word for data storage in a computer? Memory. Memory as in the sense of human memory and as in the sense of history. That memory is commercially valuable. A technologist who neglects history ensures their users will get exploited. Proof? Consider reputation systems. Any scaled marketplace has them. The history of, a, of an Uber driver or riders on platform behavior partially predicts their future behavior. Without years of star ratings, without memories of past actions of millions of people, these platforms would be wrecked by fraud. Macro history makes money. That's just one example. There are huge short, short and long-term incentives to record all this data, all this micro history and macro history. And future historians will study our digital log to understand what we were like as a civilization. Bitcoin's blockchain is a technology for robust macro history. And this will be the last part I'll go into. There are some catches to the concept of digital macro history, though. Silos, bots, sensors, and fakes. As we'll show, Bitcoin and its generalizations provide a powerful way to solve these issues. First, let's understand the problems of silos, bots, sensors, and fakes. The macro historical log is largely siloed across different corporate servers on the premises of Twitter, Facebook, and Google. The posts are typically not digitally signed or cryptographically timestamped, so much of the content is, or could be, from bots rather than humans. Inconvenient digital history can be deleted by putting sufficient pressure on centralized social media companies or academic publishers 
censoring true information in the name of taking down, quote, disinformation, as we've already seen. And the advent of AI allows a highly realistic fakes of the past and present to be generated. If we are not careful, we could drown in fake data. So how could someone in the future or even the present know if a particular event they didn't directly observe was real? The Bitcoin's blockchain gives one answer. It is the most rigorous form of history yet known to man, a history that is technically and economically resistant to revision. Thanks to a combination of cryptographic primitives and financial incentives, it is very challenging to falsify the who, what, and when of transactions written to the Bitcoin blockchain. Who initiated this transfer? What amount of Bitcoin did they send? What metadata did they attach to the transaction? And when did they send it? That information is recorded in the blockchain and sufficient to give a bare bones history of the entire Bitcoin economy since 2009. And if you sum up that entire history to the present day, you also get the values of how much BTC is held by each address. It's an immediate model of history where the past is not even past. It's with us at every second. In a little more detail, why is the Bitcoin blockchain so resistant to the rewriting of history? To falsify the who of a single transaction, you need to fake a digital signature. To falsify the what, you need to break a hash function. And to falsify the when, you need to corrupt a timestamp. And you need to do this while somehow not breaking all the other records cryptographically connected to that transaction through the mechanism of composed block headers. Some call the Bitcoin blockchain a time chain because unlike many other blockchains, its proof of work mechanism and difficulty adjustment ensure a statistically regular time interval between blocks, crucial to its function as a digital history. I recognize that these concepts and some of what follows is technical. Our whirlwind tour may provoke either familiar head nodding or confused head scratching. If you want more detail, I provided, I'll provide definitions of each term but fully explaining them is beyond the scope of this work. However, see truth, the truth machine for a popular treatment and Dan Bonez, B-O-N-E-H, cryptograph, uh, sorry, uh, cryptography court, cryptography course for technical detail. Nevertheless, here's the point for even a non-technical reader or listener. The Bitcoin's blockchain gives a history that's hard to falsify. Unless there's an advance in quantum computing, a breakthrough in pure math, a heretofore unseen bug in the code, or a highly expensive 51% attack that probably only China could muster, it is essentially infeasible to rewrite the history of the Bitcoin blockchain or anything written to it. And even if such an event does happen, it wouldn't be an instantaneous burning of Bitcoin's library of Alexandria. The hash function could be replaced with quantum safe version or another chain robust to stead attack could take Bitcoin's place and back up the ledger of all historical Bitcoin transactions to a new pro. And I'm not arguing that Bitcoin is infallible. We are arguing that it is the best technology yet invented for recording human history. And if the concept of cryptocurrency can endure the past uh, can endure past the uh, invention of quantum decryption, we will likely think of the beginning of history as the beginning of written history millennia ago. Future societies may think of the year 2022 AD as the year 13 AS with after Satoshi as the new Anno Domini and the block clock as the, uni- u- yeah, as the new universal time. The Bitcoin blockchain can record non-Bitcoin events. For a price of a single transaction, the Bitcoin to provide a cryptographically verifiable record of any historical event, a proof of existence. For example, perhaps there is some off-chain event of significant importance where you want to store it for the record. Suppose it's the famous photo of Stalin with his cronies because you anticipate the rewriting of history. The proof of existence technique we're about to describe wouldn't directly be able to prove the data of the file is real, but you could establish the metadata on the file, the who, what, and when, to a future observer. Specifically, given a, given a proof of existence, a future observer would be able to confirm that a given digital signature, the who, put a given hash of a photo, the what, 
on a chain at a given time, the when. That future observer might well suspect the photo could still be fake, but they know it'd have to be fake at the precise time by the party controlling that wallet. And the evidence would be on chain years before the airbrush official photo of Stalin was released. That's implausible under many models. Who'd fake something so specific years in advance? It'd be more likely the official photo was fake than the proof of its existence. So let's suppose that this limited level of proof was worth it to you. You are willing to pay such that the future generations can see an indelible record of a bit of history. How would you get that proof onto the Bitcoin blockchain? The way you do this is by organizing your arbitrary large external data set, a photo or something much larger than that, into what is called a Merkle tree. Calculating a string of fixed length called a Merkle root and then writing that to the Bitcoin blockchain through OP return. This furnishes a tool for proof of existence for any digital file. You can do this as a one-off for a single piece of data or as a periodic backup for any non-Bitcoin change. So you could, in theory, put a digital summary of many gigabytes of data from another chain on the Bitcoin blockchain every 10 minutes for the price of a single Bitcoin transaction, thereby proving it existed. This would effectively, quote, back up this other blockchain and give it some of the irreversibility properties of Bitcoin. Call this kind of chain a subchain. By analogy, to the industrial use of gold, this type of industrial use case of a Bitcoin transaction may turn out to be quite important. A subchain with many millions of off-chain Bitcoin transactions every 10 minutes could likely generate enough economic activity to easily pay for a single Bitcoin transaction. And as more people try to use the Bitcoin blockchain, given its capacity limits, it might turn out that only industrial use cases like this could afford to pay sufficient fees in this manner, as direct individual use of the Bitcoin blockchain could become expensive. So that means we can use the proof of existence technique to log arbitrary data to the Bitcoin blockchain, including data from other chains. The next part will be blockchains can record the history of an economy and society. Um, that's it right now for the network. Stay bloody. I hope I said that right. Appreciate you listening and anyone else who listens to this recording. But bloody was here live the whole time for pretty much the whole time. So much respect, much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed that. Thumbs up if you did. Um, and uh, we'll be back uh, tomorrow to to go through some more and have an open discussion on it. Um, super interesting though. So hope you liked it. And uh, if you're listening to this rerun, hope you liked it as well. We'll be back tomorrow. All right. Cheers.